Welcome into the Art Game Sports Business Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We've got a special one today. Uh, we're joined by Peter Stetna. Many of you will know him as a, you know, a top-tier road cyclist, rode the Tour de France multiple times, uh, rode for Trek uh, Segafredo most recently, and is now a, uh, a gravel cyclist and part of this gravel cycling movement. He's a self-proclaimed uh, privateer. And so we talked a little bit about that, about the differences in sponsorship and kind of the individ- individuality of uh, gravel cycling uh, compared to the road. And um, it was a great conversation, and we uh, really appreciated him coming on. So uh, without further ado, I'll send you over there now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Peter Stetna. Thank you. All right, oh, really so we're joined quick. here by uh, Peter Stetna. Thanks for coming yeah. on the, the podcast. We, uh, we really appreciate it. And, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, of course. And one, you know, I think we'll start off with kind of a little bit, just for the uh, viewers, if they don't know, just a little bit about your kind of your pro career on the road and kind of your path to gravel and maybe what, what made that shift? Yeah. Um, you know, I rode for over a decade in the world tour, you know, I started, uh, doing all the big races in the U S um, everything coming up in the, uh, probably 2006 through 2010. Um, when U S was really having a kind of a big boom after uh, in like the, post Lance Tour de France era, you know, and there's road cycling was so hot. Um, and then, um, I joined the world tour, did a decade there doing the tour de France and all that stuff. Um, the top tier of the sport. Um, and then coming into 2020, I, uh, saw this, this movement happening within the U S mostly. I mean, it is trending worldwide, but it's mostly, uh, U S founded. And, um, is just this discipline we call gravel, which is um, very grassroots, um, but it's exploded. And it's, I mean, whereas sponsorship is drying up in other realms and uh, races and teams are uh, closed and shop, um, gravel's like lotteries to get in because there's so much want. Um, and so it was kind of this light bulb moment where personally, I was having a lot more fun doing it. It was a much yeah. more gratifying way of, riding and racing a bike and being a pro cyclist. And, um, secondly, it was kind of this light bulb moment where it was like, wow, I think I can make a living doing this. Like, I don't have to be a world tour racer, just moonlighting on the gravel. Like, I think this has enough legs to, um, be its own thing. So I kind of went full, full speed into that and completely switched career paths. So what do you think's driving some of that difference where you've got these world tour teams uh, really, you know, or, or are you talking about world tour or even below that on the road where the sponsorship is kind of drying up or it's, mm-hmm. it's a tough environment there? Um, what do you think's driving that kind of drying up and gravel uh, really exploding? Um, it's a whole host of factors, but the biggest thing I think is that in the U S specifically cycling is a participatory sport. Whereas sure. in Europe, it's still very much a spectator sport. You know, in Europe fans are more than happy to camp out for a week on Alpe d'Huez and wait for the tour to roll sure. through just for that yeah. glimpse and appreciate the athletic effort, so to speak. Um, and, and in the U S like, I mean, you, we never maybe once in a while in the tour of Colorado or the tour of California, we had big crowds on a certain climb, sure. but, um, you know, most people 
in the US, you don't want to watch other people just exercising, <laughs> even though if you know cycling, it's much more uh, nuanced than that. Um, however, um, you know, so I think it's that combined with the fact that, you know, the the road bubble, the the Lance, Tyler Hamilton, Levi area has popped a bit. Just, um, sure. you know, we don't have a, a big Tour de France level contender anymore. You know, I mean, um, there was a bunch of guys, you know, my, my graduating class, which was, you know, TJ Van Garder and myself and all these guys, you know, we've, we've done well and, you know, TJ, especially, um, sure. yeah. and, and there hasn't really been like a big name to bring it home. Um, maybe Sepp Kuss will change that. He's a really exciting guy right now. Um, but you know, I think that was kind of the first thing. So, um, you know, it's, it's the, the, the public interest isn't there. And then you have, um, in the U S specifically to have a permit to hold a road race is so expensive to close roads yes. in the U S yeah. like people don't play ball it's in a, Europe. It's like they a thousand do. bucks a kilometer. It's crazy. I yeah. mean, just the CHP and all of that yeah. and everyone complaining and, and it's just, it's really hard as an organizer. You need to have a lot of funds. Um, and, and the, the fan base to support it just isn't there. However, gravel, I mean, all of a sudden you're talking, off road, you're talking less traffic, less danger, um, more, um, more of an experiential event. Um, and it just, everything kind of just lined up. Um, sure. So. Yeah. So the, so the team, um, the team aspect, is it, does it change, um, kind of compared to the road and the gravel, like, mm -hmm. you know, in the, and we, I talked a little bit about this, um, with, uh, TJ Eisenhart about how you've kind of got this, um, on the road, you've got a team, it's got its select, you know, three or four main sponsors. They sponsor right. everybody on the team. As you said, these teams, they're constantly fighting for the next sponsor to maintain that sponsor for one more year or that kind of thing. Is there a difference in the right. team with gravel? Like are, are many of the riders individual or are there a lot of teams on gravel? Um, both. I think it's mostly individuals or it's supported by individuals. Um, you know, I, I don't think there are gravel teams. I'll preface it with that. There's, there are off-road teams, more mountain bike teams, kind of like Payson's orange sealed squad that rally around a, a central rider. Um, sure. and they do have some sort of, um, um, team system around it. Um, I think it's more kind of like the, the mountain bike team template where it's a bunch of a small core collective group and there's one team manager and one mechanic. Um, sure. I think there's a few elite level domestic gravel teams that have a bit more. Um, they're still kind of based on like that, almost like the club uh, team format. Um, but for the most part, um, it's very individualistic in, in gravel at the moment. You know, it's, it's what I call the, the privateer business model where you're out doing you, um, you're finding your own way, you're making your own deals. Um, and you don't really have to answer to anybody, which is good as well. Um, and you know, I think a lot of guys are, have been successful doing that. Um, myself, you got Colin Strickland and Ted King, um, you know, uh, Amity Rockwell on the women's side, Kathy Pruitt, um, you know, and, and it, it allows an athlete have a voice, have a personality, which is very valued in gravel because gravel is not just about racing bikes. It's about 
the experience, the the after party, the sure. community. Yeah. So I think it's just as important to have um, a character, so to speak. And I think what you're actually seeing in Gravel is uh, fans are actually aligning with and following different characters rather sure. than just um, their favorite teams, so to speak. You know, like, I mean, I think a lot of people align with me because I'm, I unapologetically care about my performance. Like I'm very much, I'm training, I'm serious. I'm here to have a good time, but I'm going to race you. I have a number sure. on my bike. Um, whereas Alan Strickland is kind of this tinkerer, like soldering stuff when he's not riding his bike, you know, he plays the guitar. Uh, TJ is an artist, um, very uh, uh, laissez-faire in his, his sure. ethos. So, you know, it's, it's very, and I think people can align and see themselves in different that and support and that's attractive writers. as a whole to the to the audience you've got all this this melting pot of characters and oh, it's yeah. it's very accessible you know they can sign up for the race too and go out and oh. ride they may be way behind but at the after party they they see you there you know oh, and so that's why that gravel as a business is so strong because it is a shared experience and mm -hmm. you know you instead of inviting pro teams there and having to make money off of sponsorships and um tv coverage or whatever i mean you have a whole, the pros and it's the marathon format right pros in the front a whole bunch of age groupers behind um and everyone's out there doing that together and if you and i showed up to the mid-south together um even if i wrote it two hours faster than you we both went through that same thing and at the end we can cheers or commiserate yep. over beers with that and that's a very powerful thing and we all had a story to tell um and that just kind of brings it all the way back to what I said is that cycling is participatory in the U S right now. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of um, like in the, in the running community, something like the, those like Ragnar races where you've mm -hmm. got, you go there, it's a 24 hour race, trail race, you have a team and your team could be made up of, you know, X, you know, collegiate runners and people that barely run and, it, it doesn't matter. And in the end, you're all going to have a great time and you're there for that kind of love of the sport. You all go through, like you said, you all go through the same thing together. You go through this 24 hours of racing in the cold and wet and whatever. And same with, you know, the, the gravel cycling and, and people can really, you know, identify with that. I think so. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's a lot more gratifying as, as a, a fast guy pro too, because, um, you can actually use your experience and, and help other, because, you know, everyone following you, I mean, people are interested in the speed and who's winning the race, right? It's a competition, sure. but I mean, most people, I mean, they obviously that you care about yourself more. And so if you're doing this event, you care about how you're going to do, are you going to complete it? Are you going to get your PR? Are you mm -hmm. going to beat your drinking buddy or whatever it is, you know? <laughs> and so if I can share some of my experience that I've gleaned over, my time in the pros to help you do better, whether it's on tire pressure or fueling or whatever it is, tactics, um, then that will better aid you. And so I think we have a um, kind of a commonality to, to, to base each other off of, you know? Um, yeah, for sure. I have a platform to speak and, and do my job um, and, and you, uh, not you, Curtis, but you know the the listener, the the gravel participant has um, hopefully uh, can provide. I can give them some some insight. 
that sure. they care yeah, about. Of yeah. So what, um, what is the difference in kind of that, like athlete sponsor relationship when you're, you know, when mm-hmm. you're on the team and you're on the road, you know, what kind of relationship or communication do you have with the sponsor? And then when you're in gravel and you've gone out and kind of negotiated these own deals yourself, are you able to, do you have a better connection? Are you able to give more to the sponsor or less? Like how does that kind of relationship uh, work in, in gravel versus the road? Yeah. Um, I think it's easy if I just explain how the European pro model works. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people in the U S don't realize it because it's very different than uh, a guy who's just has a, a pro one, two license domestically in Europe. It is, just like the NFL or the NBA. I mean, we have, I, I mean, I have an agent or I did, um, and they were the ones that did my contract negotiations with the teams. They would basically treat me, um, like a stock market, I guess, and, you know, offer me out to different teams. And if they were looking for, in my case, uh, climbing domestique who could handle it through three weeks of a grand tour, then they were interested it was one big deal. The agent did it all. Um, I had no discussions around, I mean, obviously they, you give your input and your preferences and you, the the end decision is with me who to sign with, but, um, it was very much, you know, like one big contract, um, salary performance incentives, however, that's structured out. Um, and then I am tied to that team usually for two years is the standard. Um, and, uh, and you give your agent the cut and then you have to represent everyone that that sponsor, that team does. So they have their whole own portfolio of sponsors. Um, and you would get all your stuff at training camp. Um, and you just focus on racing your bike and, you know, every once in a while at races on rest days of grand tours, there's, uh, VIP things that you have to kind of go mingle with paying guests for, uh, autograph signings. Um, but, you know, very much you weren't supposed to talk to the actual sponsors. I mean, that was a car that the, the teams kept close to their chest. I mean, you know, maybe once a year I was called in to do a photo shoot with uh, our clothing sponsor or something or test a bike, for example, um, and do like a direct feedback. But it was very much like a don't speak unless you're spoken to. Or if you have feedback, you have to give it to this team sponsor liaison who then passes yeah. it on to the sponsors. Yeah. Because a lot of writers aren't honestly educated or um, sympathetic enough to provide constructive criticism at times, too, you know, like, and so it could really jeopardize a team yeah. sponsorship if sure. some writer um, who is angry about a product, so to speak, uh, just goes and, you know, vents an email to the president of said company because they're a big name writer, like that doesn't go over well either. So, yeah. um you know, it was very much keep them at a distance. Um, and, and the changeover was often, however, I did do enough of these projects and I actually had enough good contacts from my time in the world tour that when I did decide to strike off on my own, I, uh, I was able to kind of pull out that Rolodex and, and say like, guys, like, this is going to be a journey. Will you join me? Um, and it, yeah, it was a resounding yes. Um, and so now, it is very much the buck stops with me and it's a lot more work. The hustle is real because instead of just training and focusing on my body, I mean, I'm doing all the logistics, the plane flights, the budgeting, the spreadsheet, um, but also the, the sponsors, the pitch decks. Um, and it, 
it's a, it's a lot of work, but it's also more rewarding because basically I have that direct connection with sponsors who believe in me and I consider them friends. So, you know, I can call up Shimano, for example, and be like, Hey, what do you think about changing this thing a little bit? Like, do you think this is a prototype we could talk about someday? Or, you know, what is the, the one product you're trying to hide this year? Like, is it, you know, um, gearing ratios or this new like Ultegra coming out or whatever it is. Right. Um, so there's a lot more of a direct personal relationship and it's a lot more gratifying. Um, and it also allows me to do my job on the promotional side of things better because they tell me, um, exactly how that, how they want me to market their materials so that they can hit their goals. Um, so it's just a much more holistic, um, experience. Sure. Yeah. And, and it seems like maybe there's kind of a, an added benefit that over time with, with that more direct connection, the products, uh, that, you know, that you use as a rider may improve at a better clip, having that more direct kind of relationship and feedback, you know, it may be almost like an unintended thing over time. You get, you get the Shimano stuff. Oh, selfishly. You know? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm only yeah. trying to change products that, that are, make me go faster on the bike. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> It's a very selfish pursuit. This is true. Sure. Well, yeah. So you, you kind of mentioned a little bit about the the logistics and stuff. What what does the calendar look like in the sport? Like how many events are there? How many events may might like you do versus, mm-hmm. you know, like a a rider further back in the pack, or is it the same? And then maybe like um what has the event growth looked like? Is it a lot of smaller events? Is it kind of regionalized or what does that kind of look um, like right now? I think I'll tackle this in a perfect world scenario because we all know sure. the pandemic has yes. thrown everything upside down and it is all regional focused at the moment. However, um, before COVID started, um, I, there were over 700 gravel events in the U S that wow. had a spot. Everyone was fighting for position on the calendar. There was multiple race. I mean, generally organizers are trying to not conflict with races in their region. Um, you know, so, you know, two event, two NorCal promoters are going to try to not hit the same weekend. And even that's happening. Um, and there's, there's a lot to choose from. And, and myself as a pro, I am, and trying to highlight and help the gravel discipline become even more legitimate than it already is. Um, I'm traveling a lot. I'm going to every big one. And I'm also trying to highlight local ones that are easy for me to get to or just look like a damn good time. You know, there's sure. a lot of good fun, goofy ones that are small. Um, so it's, it's kind of a balance of that. And then you have to look, I mean, so I literally I'm racing every weekend or every other weekend from normally March through the end of October. Um, it's a lot. Um, and then I have to balance my marriage with that. <laughs> it's a whole nother juggle. Um, so you, then you have to start looking at the, the whole, like the picture of the U S and internationally, right. You get it on a map and you look at the weekends and how it flows together. Like, okay, I'm in the West coast, right. I, I can't go to Kansas and then two weeks later do another Kansas race. And then an Iowa race or something like that. Right. Because it's too much time away from home and it's just too much back and forth and back and forth, both for my logistic and, uh, the cost and, and the time. Um, so I'm trying to kind of select, you know, like, Hey, I'll block like 
three weekends of East Coast races together, and that'll be my East Coast trip, or I'll loop two international things in mainland Europe together. Um, so I'm really trying to have some flow to my calendar, um, while at the same time focusing on peaking for the biggest events, right? The mid-sells, the unbounds, the lead build, the steamboats. Um, sure. And uh, and also, you know, there are there's, there is some sponsor input, but it's very minimal just because they're just kind of like gravel's hot if, and you, I'm in a, a luxurious position of, um, at the moment, uh, if I go to an event, there will be more eyes on that event because I'm yeah. one of the, the more well-known pros in gravel. Um, and I hope that changes. I hope more and more fast guys come and this continues to become a thing. But, um, for the moment, that's the case. Wow. Yeah. So like those 700 races, are they pretty full? I mean, they're, they're getting the, the people there. I mean, not that you've been to every race, but yeah, you know, they're, is, is that that's really what's driving it is just the huge demand for signups basically. That, yeah. I think yeah. the biggest ones are the ones that are really like, you know, you're hearing about these races that are filling out their lottery within three hours or yeah. whatever it is. Right. That's, I mean, those are the biggest ones, uh, regional events you can almost always get into and just kind of do your normal pre-race registration. You might be out of luck if it, you're trying to do day of, um, but, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's all, I mean, it's, it's, it's every end of the spectrum. I mean, you have, sure. um, races that are literally, they're going to get some amount of press because there's some fast guy and girl in the U S that's going to show up and they're no registration, just show up and we're going to do this crazy ride. And I hired a photographer to like full, like, like BWR is run like a, you know, tour California, like full production crazy. I mean, it's, it's, wow. it's insane. So, yeah. I mean, and everything in between, um, the big ones, you know, you have to plan for and make sure your name is in that pot early and really commit to it though. Yeah. That that's similar to like the marathon model. Like you mentioned earlier, you know, the top marathons, it's like a multi-year process. Um, you know, unless you're, you know, an elite, you know, maybe mm -hmm. below 212 or whatever for a guy. Um, right. But then there's marathons, obviously, that you could walk up and, and walk right into. Um, so what do you kind of see for maybe the future of gravel? I know that there's EF is kind of, they've got a gravel component, and I don't know what exactly that's like. Like, you may know more about that. Is it is it riders that also ride on the road, or is it just gravel riders specifically? Right. And what do you, do you see more more teams coming in, or, you know, what do you think is going to happen there in that, in that sense? Um, it, it's only getting faster and more competitive. And I think everyone COVID kind of stymed that for a bit. Um, and now it's simmering, but it's, it's coming back. Gravel isn't going anywhere. It's still on everyone's lips. Uh, whereas last winter it was just, that was all anyone could think about, you know? Um, sure. but it's, it's big. Um, so that the EF model, and it's actually what I did last year too, although uh, my team at the time, Trek Segafredo didn't market it that, but basically I went to Trek and was like, Hey, I, world tour, tour de France, Vuelta, all that stuff. Like that's my focus. I'm, I'm a hundred percent committed to that. Yeah. I want to do some of this fun stuff when I'm at home and it fits our team calendar and it makes sense for Trek's marketing. And they sure. said, heck yes. And that's pretty much what EF is doing. So their main gravel guys are Lachlan Morton and Alex Howes, uh, who is a very close buddy of mine. 
Um, and they are, Alex House is the current road national champion. He wears the stars and stripes in the world's biggest races. Um, Lockie is a very well known road pro. Um, that's their quote unquote day job. However, uh, Rafa, one of their main sponsors sees the, the importance of gravel and Lockie and Alex's passion around it. And so they kind of, uh, did the same thing. They just highlighted certain races and they're sending these two and sometimes maybe other guys too. I don't know, uh, road pros to selected events that fit within the team's overall outline sure. while balancing the world tour. Um, they are not dedicated gravel only also because, uh, silly enough, the UCI, uh, the go current governing body of cycling does not actually see gravel as an actual discipline. <laughs> so I don't actually need a racing license at the moment. Um, which is, I mean, they just totally missed the boat on that. Um, sure. and now they're kind of scraping to come back, but, uh, there's a very resounding, uh, crap F off from gravel organizers saying we got this, yeah. we're doing just fine. Stop sticking your hand in our, in our honey pot. However, that's a whole nother story. So anyway, um, yeah. there, there's a few local, uh, not local domestic gravel teams, you know, um, I think there's, uh, that Pan Eraser team out of the U S which they might do like road stuff too. I think they're based in Texas, but they, they actually send like core five, six guys to gravel events. Um, however, there's not like a bunch of dedicated gravel teams. And I think there's a really a big push not to have that because nobody wants to have gravel racing become road racing off of off road. No yeah. one wants the team tactics, the city. Well, yeah. You have to have the team to, to win. Pull, yeah. Pulling yeah. a guy. So he takes off in the last hour and like all of that, like, and that's cause that's what ruined road racing for a lot of people. And gravel is that, that gentleman's race right now where we're all taking pulls until you can't anymore. Sure. Um, it's really refreshing. So, um, I'm sure gravel teams will come, um, especially with, uh, American road racing, just like on its deathbed at the moment. I mean, there's not a very good calendar. Crit racing is doing well, but the road racing because of permitting and the call sponsor. Sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of teams are sending their riders to gravel events to provide value. And for a lot of riders, like those are some of the only endurance events happening in the U S right now. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Do you, do you want to hit a little bit on that, that UCI thing? Is it, does it yeah. function as, um, potentially almost like in, in, impending regulation out there or, you know, I don't, can they come in and force people to have a license or can organizers just say, we're not going to be a UCI yeah. event or how, what is that kind of relationship? You like? know, the UCI is, they are very much, they are a for-profit company. Um, they are basically the, the recognized body for the international Olympic committee. So their, their power is held in that the IOC that runs the Olympics says that the UCI is like the cycling governance board. So they are the ones they talk to and create regulations and set all that out. Um, and so then the UCI has rules that certain race organizers pay into to guarantee that certain teams will come. Right. So, um, you know, the UCI, they're trying to be more inclusive, I think, but in the past they're like, Hey, if you hold a UCI card, you can't do an unsanctioned race because then 
that's not part of our portfolio. We're actually going to fine you and take away your license to do our races, right? Um, and so people have kind of just said screw you to some of them. Um, and and then gravel has gotten big enough, and the UCI was like, oh, this is just like Americans having their fun. Yeah. They didn't, and now that there's so much money and so much industry, yeah, now they see the money, it. and it's like, wait a minute. And so, what do they have? You know, as as the the legislative body, they can put on world championships, right? They can crown a gravel world champion, which I mean, I'm conflicted because as a gravel pro, and for my sponsors and my own personal dreams, right, you want to be that a championship. world champion, right? The rainbow yeah. stripes—that's a thing. However, um, you know, I think a lot of these main races, the unbounds, the SBTs, they are doing just fine without the UCI. And if the UCI comes in, they say, Hey, you have to pay these fees. You have to adhere to these rules. You have to have these licenses. The, you have to use our insurances, for example, our officials. And it does throw a whole bunch of regulation in there. I mean, I think UCI tried to throw out something this spring that was like, um, you know, Oh, we're going to, we're going to have a gravel worlds and, uh, to make sure we keep it fun. Like, we're not going to allow any people with a uh, body fat below a certain percentage, because that means you're too pro and you care too much instead of being in it for the fun. It was like, you guys really just missed the boat <laughs> on this. That's how you're going to regulate it yeah. by, uh, uh, you know, pinching my tummy before this. <laughs> like, are you kidding me right now? Um, yeah. so it's, they, it's like, we're the cool it, guys. We're the cool guys. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming. Yeah. Um, they will make gravel things. I don't know if it, I, I think, for example, maybe I'll go to UCI Worlds because I'll have to and because I will care about it. But at the same time, I'm probably going to prioritize Unbound and BWR more than it. Like that's going to kind of be an right. afterthought race and just hope that something cool happens. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it, it's a weird time. There's a lot shifting. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know, kind of like you mentioned, there's this at the beginning in the in the U.S. like the spectator component of the sport is is not really there in gravel, and it, you know, I was kind of interested in that like cyclocross, which I know is different. It's a UCI thing, but you see it in in Belgium. It's it's you know, it's like mm -hmm. a really tight crit. You know, it's packed in. People are there. They're in the cold. They're able to, you know go to the main tent area and kind of party and have fun and be at, be at that event and that gravel, you know, it's, it can bring that. And if it starts and finishes at a big brewery or something like that, right. um, versus this sort of, you know, UCI kind of having their hands all over it, you know, that's going to be attractive to people. And ultimately, you know, you can still make, probably can ultimately make more money at the top of those events, just like you see in, um, you know, road marathons and those kinds of things, getting that, those numbers of people to, to spectate, making it fun for them. It, it doesn't hinder the top, top riders, top athletes, top sponsors. You know, it's, it's actually kind of has that opposite effect. Right. So hopefully that, you know, like you said, some of these big events can, can remain fun, you know, legitimately. I fun. think so. Yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. You know, I know USA cycling see, I mean, they have to, come into gravel because 
you know, that's the only thing happening in the U.S. at the moment. Not the only thing. Well, it's the it's um, the growth. It's the future. Exactly. Um, and, you know, so so what, you know, and it'll be really interesting to see what they do, because I understand they're in a hard position and they've had to reinvent themselves since, you know, the the boom of road. Um, you know, but a lot of people don't want I know race organizers don't want to use USAC's insurance, for example, because they can get their own insurance cheaper through a third party. Or, yeah. you know, I think, um, you know, people, registrants are like, wait, I'm going to have to pay not only my entry fee, but like a, now a one day license or an annual license as well. Like it's just right now it's another burden, but I know they're, they're interested and their eyes are on it. And it'll be really interesting to see what they come up with because they, they do re recognize that, this is about the masses and it's not just a about churning profit. So, sure. yeah. Well, awesome. Well, um, is there anything else that's kind of the sort of main list of questions I had? Is there anything else that jumps <laughs> out at you or anything you'd like to add, uh, you know, before we finish up? No, you know, I just, I think, you know, anyone looking to get into gravel, um, you know, I, I cannot, um, I, I don't know what the right way to say this is. Um, I, I strongly suggest doing the privateer model and, and thinking about yourself and your brand, because, you know, especially with the age of the Instagram influencer and all that stuff, right? Sure. Like it's, you know, you, you find you, you do what makes you tick, you know, and I'm going to do what makes me tick. And we're all going to find our own way in this together. And you can really think about your brand and what you stand for and align yourself with companies that want to support it. Um, from a lifestyle aspect, because the lifestyle is just as important right now. So, you know, that's something sure. that I really had to focus on is, you know, um, going out and finding sponsors that really make sense and that aren't too few and aren't too many and that all tell a story. Um, and, and once you really create that brand and your business, then it's so much more gratifying because, it compounds on itself and every day is fun. So um, even if, if you're not uh, able to get sponsored or paid by a company, just think about who you like and, and when you are able to represent them um, and tag them in whatever you're doing online or anything, I, they'll appreciate it and they'll see the organic nature of it. I think that's, that's the most important is staying organic and staying true because if you just look like you're peddling a product, people don't care. Um, it's really about finding that niche and why. I mean, I think people see I'm tagging Athletic Brewing, for example. Yes, they're a sponsor, but I think people are understanding it's because I believe in them. It's because I actually use this on a day-to-day -day basis and it actually fits into the greater idea of what Pete Stetna, the privateer is, you know, of, you know, having that beer, but also caring about your performance the next day. I'm not going to go have a triple IPA the night before a race, <laughs> you know, that kind of yeah. thing, you know? So it's, yeah. it's just about finding those nuances and finding your own way through it. Yeah. And you have that opportunity with that, with that athlete sponsorship connection to, to do that, to get the right mm -hmm. sponsors, to have the right products, to speak more organically and like honestly and truthfully, and that's going to help them. That's going to help the sponsors and, and you in the, in the long run. I hope so. Yeah especially with other things not being that way, it's going to stick out and it'll be a, you know, an advantage in that sense. 
All right. Well, we, we really appreciated it. And uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, You know, you're welcome back in the future. We can check in and see for sure where, where gravel racing is and, you know, months, years, et cetera. And um, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. That was a fun one. All right. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Bye.